0: Hello, welcome to a new episode of Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Art in Geneva. Today's episode is an interview with Julia Gale. Julia is a writer and a playwright who is currently finishing her new play on the life and thought and spiritual experiences of Simone Veil. The protagonist of our previous episode. The play is titled A Beautiful Room to Die In. Hello, Julia, and thank you for coming on Overmora's Library.
1: Hello, Federico. Thank you for having me
0: here. So, since we don't have much time, let's start immediately. As you know, last time we uh, spoke a bit about Simon Vail's life and thought, and especially about one short text called titled The Iliad or The Poem of Force. Uh-huh. But I would like to ask you to um, start with her life, because your play is also especially uh, about her life. How can we understand Simone Veil's life as a key to her work?
1: She was born into a wealthy family. She was incredibly intelligent. That throws up its own paradox. It threw up its own paradox for her in that the intellect can be a great barrier to the spiritual. And she understood that. Wealth possibly is, the, it's something very difficult for us to understand now, I think, but perhaps wealth is one of the greatest hazards of our, the hazard of our situation that we're given in that our spiritual obligation is increasingly difficult to understand in terms of, of our being wealthy. And when Simone talks about Christianity being the religion of slaves, I think she understood that in a in a very real in a very real way from from both sides of it. So she made herself in 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 some ways submit to those experiences always with the question of whether she could be, as I think at one point she called it, a tourist uh, among the working classes. That's, that, that, that's, the, that's the phrase she used about the year of her going in to be a factory worker when she gave up her successful career as a professor, essentially, to go and work in car factories.
0: And a big part of her life was also her brother, Andre, a mathematical genius, but I remember that one of the things Simone Weil um, remarked, and something that you brought up in an earlier conversation, is that when writing to him, she said, if only five people understand your work, what is the point of your work? So I'd like to ask you, what was the point of Simone Weil's work?
1: When her biographer Simone Petremont, also a childhood friend, and someone who was very close to her, as I understand it, talks about the possibility of art actually relating in a let's say, faithful or real way to the idea of Simone Weil having been a mystic. And that is to say when Simone Weil says to us, Christ descended and took possession of her, we believe that's what what, what happened to her rather than thinking it's a, a, a metaphor, let's say. Her biographer says, if there is saintliness... It manifests, it manifests itself in the life. The reason to believe in the mystical experience of Simone Veil, it is her life. And I think that essentially is the reason for us to read her, because she was who she was. So if we talk about suffering, if we talk about suffering and we think we sympathise with suffering and we cast looks at homeless people and think we feel sympathy or something. I believe when Simone Weil saw suffering, she suffered. And that means her writing means something.
0: So maybe one of the aspects of what in the previous episode I was um Calling her geometrical precision when she makes, when she does philosophy, when she produces philosophical statements, and how that geometry is based on an experience, on an intuition, is possibly because of this embodied experience and understanding of the suffering of others.
1: I think she would have spoken if you'd have suggested that to her about the difference between geometry and algebra, and that geometry is for her. I think, a real discipline, which allows us to think about the way in which we look at reality. Algebra, she said, began the decadence of our understanding of reality because we begin to see life in terms of signs and we begin to replace what reality is with signs for that reality. And So when I'm looking at the homeless person and feeling sympathy, that sympathy is an algebra for my, which ought to be for me, if I have a real sense of my spiritual obligation, which she did, the geometry of being in the world, a geometrical relationship to suffering, which I think she had, which a real relationship to suffering.
0: And she also suffered herself in her life. She had a lot of physical problems, especially terrible headaches, migraines um, that plagued her throughout her very short life. What was her relationship with her own suffering?
1: Her relationship with her own suffering was that it brought her close to God. And I, I suspect that's another reason why we do or we would find her thought very difficult to deal with because for her, it's a very hard thought. Affliction is the closest we get to God. In our suffering, we get closer to God than we can get in our comfort, which is also why wealth is such a great hazard and the the way in which wealth goes the movement which wealth makes is so radically opposite to the movement towards God because only with suffering. For her, what she called malheur, which is usually translated as affliction. In the play, we're calling it wretched fortune because perhaps affliction doesn't quite get the idea of chance in there. And Federico, if you were talking about uh, the poem of Force, you'll have been thinking about her ideas on chance as, let's say, opposed or as can kind of radically separate from providence. I don't think affliction quite gets the idea of, of chance in there, but if you are in the chance situation of absolute wretchedness, you are actually, by chance, possibly closer to God.
0: One thing that struck me about her understanding also of uh, the religious experience and uh, the mystical experience in part, was her focus on attention, but attention in a strange situation. She basically says that to a certain extent, God has abandoned the world, and it's exactly the lack, the disappearance of God, that is the object, that has to be the object of our attention, to focus on that. Maybe something not too dissimilar from that suffering that you were mentioning. It. I would like to ask you, in what way is, Simone Weil vale, then a mystic she's usually defined a mystical author but in, in what way is she a mystic
1: I believe she's a mystic because I can't believe that she didn't know God because I've been her reader and I've encountered her and I have encountered God through her she has been there at the moments of truth which cut into what perhaps you would call the horizontal she's been present at moments of god's truth
0: of the vertical cutting the horizontal so to say
1: yeah or in 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 her simple term grace
0: but something a bit short of grace maybe, um, or maybe exceeding it, is the ritualities that surround also the experience of being religious. For example, for a Christian, such as Simon veil vale was, uh, baptism. But she refused baptism. She didn't accept it. Why?
1: There are two answers I want to give to that and, and, and neither is sufficient. So, because everything is insufficient. There's a sense with me, as with Kierkegaard, that no true attempt to follow Christianity can take place within the institution of the church. And I say this as someone who has, since her sudden conversion, been attempting Christianity within the institution of the church. So... I say that hypocritically. I, I, I don't. I, I think she knew one couldn't attempt to be a Christian within that institution. Why is that? Uh, because, as Satan tells Christ in Luke, I have been given the world. It's been given to me, and all the authority has been given to me, and I will share it with whomever I want to share it. It thus results. She says, following Christ's temptation in the desert, her reading of it, that the social is irredeemably, irreducibly, I think, the realm of the devil. And the institution of the church is a social institution.
0: And that's something else also that struck me. When she took sides in reading her authors, she took sides with the Greeks, always, and never with the Romans. Um, Her Latin sources are very few, uh, Greek sources are very plentiful. And she had this this distaste for Rome and for Israel, even though she was a Jew Jew herself originally, and converted later, and this incredible love for Greece. Does this relate in any way to her distrust of the the greatness, so to say, of social and political greatness, that of Rome as much as that of Israel?
1: And the agonizing struggle to understand what patriotism is what nation is what nationality is as she understood it's for her as a French woman looking at for example the colonies how she would try to understand that situation which she'd been with with that kind of privileged situation which she'd been given which she didn't which she never quite understood, except, I think, in, in looking, in understanding how we are continuing for her to read all success in the pattern of the Roman Empire. Which for her was terribly, terribly wrong. And, uh, you know, as was the French Revolution, which, which, which she thought had been the death of France and yet she was deeply involved with the trade union movements in France of course and yet understood that they were just as terrible as everything else and I think her willingness to confront how humanly appalling all our solutions are, you were talking about the need for roots and that well, she, she comes up with these ideas, but they're undoable. But only the, only the undoable is doable for
0: her. As you know, we are creating a library here. We are trying to create a virtual library for the day after tomorrow. And in the previous episode, we discussed one text by Simone Veil, the Iliad of the Poem of Force. But she wrote so much more, uh, and I would have liked to include so much more. I think, for example, about her essay, on the personality and the sacred. But what would you add to the shelf of Simone Veil vale in this library?
1: First exhortation is read her, we need her. We need her. She's incredibly difficult. She is in such hard thought territory and, and and we we need to be there with her. You need to be there with her. I can't give you that relation. It, it, it has to be yours. But An interesting place to begin, if not Gravity and Grace, which, in a sense, is a standard collection and has, I I know, affected infinitely many people. Her spiritual autobiography in in the English collection, Waiting for God, the collection of her letters, a, a letter she wrote to a priest just before she left France where she outlines her Spiritual autobiography, and as we say in the play as, uh, the protagonist in the play says, we, "We ought to all be that autobiographies of the spirit." Of course, so few of us actually manage to be that. So I, I, I might start from there.
0: And if one was to find a central theme or um, a key? conceptual key to the thought of Simone Weil. Is there one idea in particular that you think should be observed carefully in her work?
1: The great human error is to have separated justice and love. And when she says that, she doesn't mean justice and love are synonymous or they're related or that they should involve each other. She means absolutely and entirely that love and justice are precisely, exactly the same thing. And because she believed that, because she actually believed that, not she didn't think it or have an inkling of it, because she actually knew that love and justice were the same thing, that had only latterly been separated by uh, the kind of easiness of human conscience. I... I know that she saw God.
0: Let's step back for a moment now from Simon Vale, but let's remain on the same shelf where we have placed her work in this library. What else would you put next to it, according to the golden rule of libraries, the rule of the good neighbour?
1: So the, the rule, I, I flout the golden rule of the good neighbour because on my bookshelves I put Put Proust and Joyce next to each other because Joyce said Proust was somewhat pointless and Proust and Joyce are the two of the three great literary projects of the early 20th century for me. And I, I, I'm going to offer the third one. Let Kafka, I think, sit next to her because Christ is of the concrete metaphor and the life lived as well as possible is the attempt at making concrete, the concrete metaphor of goodness. And Kafka is the great writer of the concrete metaphor for our century. And I think making concrete, the metaphor is what relates Simone to Kafka. Kafka did it in his writing in a way which I, don't believe
0: any other writer has done. And with that, we finish for today for Overmorrow's library. Thank you so much, Julia, for having been with us. And thank you to the listeners. And I will see you next time for something completely different. The next episode will be about philosophy in video game design, especially metaphysics. How it is possible to create virtual worlds, where subjectivities multiply and worlds multiply. Here on Overmoro's Library from the Centre of Contemporary Art in Geneva. Goodbye.